also on the website. There we go. Okay. Um, so let's all practice Christian charity and go ahead and mute our microphones. Uh, that will be really, really helpful. And if you do want to share something or ask a question, then unmute yourself. Um, so, and we'll have some time for discussion at the end. Right, so I've asked uh, Dr. Allison to talk for 45 minutes, maybe an hour, however long the spirit leads him. And, uh, and, and then we'll have some time for discussion at the end. You might, um, since we're a little bit of a bigger group this evening, you can utilize the chat box, um, drop any comments or notes or questions that you have there. And that's a surefire way that uh, we'll see your question and that, that we'll make sure that it gets asked. All right, I think that's all I have. Oh, I'm gonna open us with a prayer, a collect from Easter Sunday. Let us pray. Almighty God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten son to the death of the cross and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy. Grant us so to die daily to sin that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, Dale, over to you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for your kind comments. Um, I don't know exactly how long this will go, um, but I, I plan on leaving room for questions, uh, questions at the end. Um, this is a fascinating topic. It's a controversial topic. It's an important topic. And uh, the historians disagree about lots of things. There's no consensus here. And the theologians also disagree about lots of things. So there's no uh, consensus. What I'm going to do, therefore, is not pretend to give you what the consensus is or what historian thinks or what theologian, theologians think. I'm going to share with you some of my own uh, ideas and opinions. Um, and I'm not going to do that so that you should believe this or, or, or believe that. Um, this is an area where there will be disagreement and I'm not going to be dogmatic about, about anything. I have discovered over the years that when I talk to groups of Christians about this subject, if I'm in uh, a mainstream church or a, a, a liberal church, somewhere other than a fundamentalist or really conservative evangelical church, there are usually three sorts of Christians out there listening to me. Three people, three types of people who might come up to me afterwards and then ask questions. One sort of uh, Christian is what you might call a, a modernist or liberal Christian. These are people who find it just impossible to think that a tomb was empty and that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that he appeared to his uh, disciples in a, in a physical form. And they think this must be some kind of a metaphor or a symbol. It reads more like to them a fairy tale or a legend than, than history. 
Uh, on the other hand, there are certainly those who um, are anxious that I, I, I tell them that the tomb was empty and that the appearances were not hallucinations. People really did see Jesus and that he really rose from the dead. And then um, there's a third group out there and it's a very interesting group. And it's the group that says, well, you know what? I'm just not sure what I should think. I'm a little confused here and I find it hard to put everything together. Um, so what I want to do this evening is just, um, again, not tell you what you should think, but just share with you some of the ideas that I have um, come to hold myself. But the way I want to do this is I want to begin by introducing uh, what I'll call the, the standard stories. So there are several different ways of reconstructing what happened at the very beginning of Christianity. Several ways of explaining how it was that Peter and Paul and other early Christians really did come to believe that Jesus had risen from, from the dead. So here we go, and I'm going to zoom through these. Uh, I've, I've put them here this evening into, into eight uh, categories, all right? So there are eight different stories. People from eight different points of view coming at the data and saying, okay, I have the explanation or the best explanation of the facts. So here we go. Number one is what I'll call the traditional or orthodox view. And it is what you all know. The tomb was empty and Jesus appeared to his followers because God raised him literally from the dead. And um, the only footnote I'll add to this is that in modern theology, there are some theologians who think that the tomb was empty, but that the appearances, all the appearances were of a visionary nature. So I don't know if any of you know who N.T. Wright is or Tom Wright, but he represents a school of thought which has it that the tomb was empty and that when the disciples encountered Jesus, he was physically there exactly in the same way that well, I'm not with you at all now, so it's like, I can't make an illustration, but maybe somebody's there in your house with you, and you can go see that person and touch that person and, and so on. So that's one way of thinking about this, but the other point of view is that the tomb was empty, and Jesus entered some other reality, and that he appeared to the disciples from that reality so that the, the experiences are visionary, but they're true visions or, or what the theologians would call veridical visions. That means they're not subjective hallucinations. They are actually seeing something that's there. Okay, so that's, that's view number one. Pretty straightforward, except for the, the little twist there, there at the end. The second view has it that everything got started when the tomb got empty, but it got emptied through non-supernatural means. So there are several stories here. One is Joseph of Arimathea uh, was in a hurry on Friday night, and he wanted to put Jesus somewhere other than his own family too, but he was in a hurry, so he just put him there temporarily because it was the Sabbath and the holiday, but he came back later and moved the body, put it somewhere else, but the women went to the first tomb and then they got all excited and decided he must have risen from the dead because his body was missing. 
There are additional ways of getting the body out of the tomb without a miracle. There were thieves uh, in the ancient world. There were uh, body snatchers. Um, and this seems really strange to us, but we do have uh, papyri, which have magical recipes on them, and some of them require that you use body parts. Some of them require that you have uh, a bone of somebody who died violently and so on. There are actually are quite a few stories and uh, sources which refer to the theft of, of bodies. So if you want to play skeptic, yeah, the tomb was empty, but Joe took the body, Joseph of Arimathea, or maybe some thieves did. My favorite version of this, it has no chance, I don't next to no chance of being true, but sometimes uh, I, I just appreciate human ingenuity. So Matthew says there was an earthquake when Jesus died. So this view says, well, they put Jesus's body in a tomb and then there was an earthquake and the earth split, the earth split, swallowed the body and then closed up. So they went to the tomb and they couldn't find him. Um, so that's really far-fetched, but again, nice testament to human ingenuity in, in, in my judgment. Of course, the other possibility, which uh, has no scholarly or serious academic uh, support, but which shows up in books once in a while, it showed up when I was uh, a teenager in a book called The Passover Plot. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember this, but this was the view that Jesus applauded his own fake crucifixion, and he didn't really die on the cross, and so he was able to walk out of the tomb a little later. There are all sorts of popular uh, books that are built around this, uh, what I think is a, a silly idea. Okay, anyway, the point is that some people have said, well, I don't, I don't believe in the, the miracle stuff, but I, I can understand an empty tomb. And then that led everybody to say, oh, wow, he rose from the dead. Now, the third point of view is also a, a skeptical point of view. And it simply says that, well, the empty tomb, that's probably a legend. That's probably late. It's not, uh, not early. But what really happened is that people hallucinated Jesus. Um, you all know that people hallucinate, right? Everybody knows that people hallucinate. Maybe some of you have had hallucinations. Um, Oliver Sacks wrote a fascinating book on uh, hallucinations several years ago that I read. And uh, turns out hallucination isn't that rare. Not only that, but it turns out it's not pathological. Lots of our contemporaries have unusual uh, visions of a, of a subjective nature. And if you're a Protestant, you probably think that when Catholic visionaries report seeing Mary, that they're just seeing things. Um, or maybe you're, you, you sometimes go to the internet. Uh, maybe none of you have done this, but I've done it for reasons which I will not explain here. But um, if, you, if you go into the internet and plug in something like eyewitness sightings of Bigfoot, it's truly astounding how many people out there think they've seen Bigfoot. And if you listen to some of them, some of them must be sincere. So they're misidentifying or, I don't know, hallucinating. Anyway, there are way too many reports of big, Bigfoot uh, for them all to be correct. You know, even if there are a few of these things, which I doubt, 
hanging around somewhere. Lots of people are seeing them. So that's the, this possibility. It's just subjective, right? Okay. The fourth option is the disciples stole the body. That's actually in Matthew 28. That is, Matthew says there are some people who say it got a, it, it, this all got started when the disciples stole the body. Uh, one old version of this has it that the disciples just liked being in the religion business. Uh, they liked getting free food. They liked people, you know, respecting to them. They, they, you know, you, you get, Garrett, you sure. get free food on sure. Sunday sometimes, right? Too many, you get lots of cookies and cake. All right. So the disciples liked all this free food and um, they just liked the business. They didn't want it to end. So they said Jesus rose from the dead. Exceedingly cynical view. And I don't know of any modern scholar who holds it. Um, the fifth view is much more interesting to me. And this is the view that Jesus did survive death. And he did appear to his disciples, to Peter and Mary, Magdalene and Paul. But the story of the tomb is a legend. All right. So again, tomb, this must be a late story. But it was brought into being. People thought the tomb must be emptied because they really did see Jesus. He really was manifest to them. He saw them and they saw him. So again, what you would call veridical, veridical visions, uh, as opposed to the hallucination theory. Um, now, a couple of more, just very briefly here. Um, one has it, uh, one theory has it, that there was a belief abroad in Jesus's time that there would be a prophet who would die and then rise from the dead. And Jesus's disciples thought before Easter, before the crucifixion, that Jesus was this person. Some of you may remember this bizarre story in Matthew and Mark, where John the Baptist has his head cut off. And then what? Herod says, well, this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. That is, Jesus is some guy who's come back to life. Or you might remember the really strange passage in the book of Revelation, where the two witnesses, a couple of prophets, they're slaughtered, they're martyred, and then three and a half days later, they, they rise up. So some people have put together stories like this and said, well, there was actually an idea in the air in Jesus's time and place that this great prophet would die and rise, and Jesus was this prophet, according to his disciples. So when he died, they just assumed that he had risen, and then the stories all come later. Okay, two more, and then I'll be done with this, all right? The first one is just Jesus didn't exist, so these are all myths. That's the easiest explanation of all. It's also the one that has the least uh, likelihood behind it because Jesus was an historical figure despite some, um, some atheist, uh, what, bloggers out there. Um, so that's, that's just not gonna, not gonna fly. And then finally, the, the, the last category is what I just call the idiosyncratic category. This is the truly weird category. And my favorite was actually put forward by a Roman Catholic theologian about 30 years ago. 
And uh, he said, well, you know, we can't believe that bodies really come back to life, but Jesus is the son of God and he is the Lord and he survived death and he appeared to his apostles. The problem was the disciples were really literal about resurrection and they wouldn't have believed unless the tomb were empty. So what God did was he, he, Jesus's body didn't disappear. He just sped up the normal process of disintegration. So in three days, there was nothing left but dust, nothing left uh, to the body. So when they went in, there was nothing there. So this allowed them to accept uh, seeing Jesus in his risen state. Again, uh, I only know one person who thinks this, but it represents um, a, a, a number of really strange idiosyncratic opinions. And again, this is just testimony to human ingenuity. This is the sort of thing that belongs in a novel, not in history. Okay, so there you have a little introduction. So the question is, how do you make a decision? How do you decide which story? You don't want to say if you're an historian, well, I like that one, or I don't like that one. That's not an argument, right? It's also not an argument to say, well, when I grew up, they taught me this in Sunday school, and I'm going to believe it because of that. So if you're a historian, you've got to deal with data and texts and, and, and so on, try to figure things out. So I'm going to go through this really quickly, folks, uh, as quickly as I can. There are three primary sources all right, if we're dealing with the subject of resurrection, there are three sources. There are the letters that Paul wrote. There are our gospels, the four canonical gospels, which are probably the four earliest ones. And then there's the book of Acts. Now, if you're, if you're looking at the letters of Paul, the most important thing is in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm actually going to read this to you because it's, it's an early creed. Now, I don't know what you do at your church, whether you sometimes recite the Nicene Creed, or maybe you recite the Apostles' Creed, or maybe you recite both or some creed? every Sunday. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you know what a creed is. It's a it's a prepackaged statement of what some people believe. So Paul already in his day had a prepackaged statement that he could um, refer to. So here it is, just to remind you, for I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. So at this point, he's quoting, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So all of that is part of Paul's creed, that is, he didn't compose this. Somebody before him composed this. Now, the source may have ended there, or it may have continued. We're not sure. But this is followed by, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So that is a pre-Pauline creed or confession, and it's really interesting. It's interesting for several reasons. One is, Paul knows Peter. 
We know that from Galatians. He knows James. We know that from Galatians. He knows at least one other member of the 12, James, the son of Zebedee. We know this from Galatians. So this isn't folklore. He's actually passing on a tradition, and he knows some of the people involved. For all I know, he knew most of them. But at least we know he knows some of them. So this is not late and legendary. It's not folklore. All right. That's the first thing. Then a couple of other things that are really interesting here is that um, there are uh, in this some collective appearances. That is, Jesus appears to the 12 and then to the 500, and maybe that's also what to, the, to all the apostles means. So we have two or three group appearances. And why this is important is because apologists have always said, well, you know, one person can hallucinate, but how do you have a group of people that hallucinate, right? That's much more difficult. Not only that, but Jesus appears to Peter and the 12 and the 500 and to James and to all the apostles, which means you have multiple appearances. And again, one person can hallucinate, but what are the odds that a number of people keep hallucinating the, the same thing. And then apologists will also observe that Paul adds his own experience here, and he was converted by his vision. All right. So that's Paul. Very, very quickly, that's Paul. Now, then you have the Gospels, and here we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, there are differences between them here, and I think it's kind of funny because um, apologists will say, look, there are these differences, tensions, maybe even contradictions. It shows that they're not copying each other. And then the skeptics will look at the same data and they'll say, oh, this proves we can't trust them because they don't agree with, with each other. Neither argument, uh, if you think about it carefully, makes much sense. But here is what we have in the Gospels. They agree that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. They agree that Mary Magdalene or Mary Magdalene plus another woman or Mary Magdalene plus some other women found it empty. And then they agree that Jesus appeared to several people, including some uh, uh, groups. All right. So they agree on those things. And so you're left with questions very similar to what you get from Paul. That is, how does somebody appear to multiple people if it's all hallucination? Or how do you have group appearances if it is all hallucination? By the way, I should also add at this point that as an historian, it's really interesting that Paul says he rose on the third day and that all four gospels have the Easter events happening on the Sunday after Jesus is crucified. And the passion predictions in the gospels all have Jesus rising after three days or on the third day. I think if you put all that together, there's a memory there that belief in the resurrection happened really early on. So I think that the key events actually, as an historian, this is the best bet, they happened in the first week. The key events happened in the first week and there's no testimony contradicting this. There's no reason uh, to think otherwise. Okay, so what do we do at this point? What do we do at this point? So we've got some questions. We've got some, I don't know, data, if you will. Um, but of course, the gospels have agendas and 
Paul's a sort of apologist in 1 Corinthians 15. So how do you, how do you get anywhere? All right. Now, at this point, I don't want you to agree. I just want to share with you one of the things that I have come to conclude. All right. So Acts says that the appearance of Jesus to Paul was a vision, right? Acts says that it was a vision. It has, it's not embarrassed by this. It calls it a vision. And if you look at the Gospels, there are a couple of places where it looks like everything's very, very physical, right? Very, very physical. On the other hand, Jesus in the Gospels just appears out of nowhere. It's just poof, just there. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it says the doors are closed, and then he's standing there in their midst. So he doesn't approach and knock on the door, and then they open it, and he enters. He just poof, pops in. Also, it looks like he just pops out when, he, when he's done. But there are other things here. One is that a lot of people don't recognize him. When he appears to Mary Magdalene, she doesn't know who he is. When he appears to the two people on the Emmaus Road, they don't recognize him. That's really strange. If this is just ordinary ICU uh, high stuff. Um, now, I think that if you go through the Gospels very carefully and think about these experiences, much in them reminds me of visions. So what I end up concluding, or uh, maybe this is a hypothesis to be tested, is that the Gospels seem to go back to what I would call visionary-like experiences, maybe visions, or at least visionary-like experiences. Now, if you're like me and you come to that conclusion, what are you, what are you supposed to do? Well, if you know uh, the literature, you know some people hallucinate, right? But it's also the case if you know the literature, if you read the literature on apparitions and hallucinations and so on, you'll find a num actually lots of cases, actually tons of cases, where more than one person says, we saw so-and-so. And tons of cases where somebody appears to several people at once. Now, yeah, I'm being an historian here, so I'm trying to think in parallels. Just, just bear with me for a minute. I, um, I'm going to tell you a couple of, of stories, and these are stories that involve me and my family. And these are the sorts of stories that if you have similar stories or you have heard stories from people you trust, I think give you a more open mind about uh, the resurrection appearances as visionary uh, like. So many years ago, uh, my best friend, my wife's best friend was run over by a drunk driver and she, um, she survived for a few weeks, but then she died. And three days after she died, the three is an odd coincidence. Three days after she died, she woke me up. At least this is my memory. This is what I think happened. This is what I thought happened at the time. She woke me up and she just stood at the end of my bed and she didn't say anything at all, but she was beautiful and transfigured. And I remember thinking at the time that this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And anyone in this state would be the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. 
So I accepted this as real. It was really, you know, I've tried to be critical. I've read the literature on hallucinations and so on. But once this happens to you, it, it feels different. And in the moment, inside of it, this was absolutely real. Several weeks later, I was typing. I was working away on the Gospel of Matthew. And then all of a sudden, I say, oh, that's Barbara. She's up there, and she's telling me something. I don't know how these things work, work folk. I, I don't understand them. But she actually gave me a message and told me to go do something. And it was so overwhelming and so real that I did it. Now, a number of years later, uh, something really strange happened when my father died. Uh, after my, my father died, um, and I was home babysitting for the kids. My wife was with him when, when he died. And my wife came back that night, middle of the night. She said, you know what? After everybody left, the doctors left, your mother left, everybody left. I was just alone with your dad. And he came back and he told me that he was so relieved and happy that he was finally, he died of brain cancer. It was a very miserable death. And he told her that he was really happy and, and delighted to, um, to be done with this. Uh, three days later, my son Andrew comes in and says, hi, daddy. I just uh, talked to grandpa. Grandpa just appeared to me. Hey, he tells me a story. A few weeks later, my brother talks to me and he says, oh, yeah, I've talked to dad. Dad said this. He had a message and so on and so on. Now, I could go on. I actually I, I'd have to sit and count. Seven or eight people came and told me stories about the encounters after death with my father, including my wife. Uh, my two sons and my my daughter and and a nephew uh, and my mother. Anyway, um, here's the thing, folks. I've read the literature on this, and it turns out, according to the social psychologists who've done a lot of work on this since the 1970s, early 70s, about half uh, half uh, of widows and widowers uh, within the first year of death think that they have come into contact with, in one way or another, a, a, a dead loved one. They see or they hear or they, they touch or they sense this overwhelming present. It presence. It turns out this is a pretty common phenomenon, folks. It, about 40% or more of the general population will report this over the course of a lifetime. And here's one of the things that's really strange about it. By the way, I don't, I don't understand things. I'm just reporting. Um, I'm just reporting. Um, very few people who see dead loved ones say, I saw a ghost, because these people are almost always not see-through. They're not stereotypical ghosts. They look real. They are often touched or they will, people will be touched. I've even found accounts where, where Christians will say it was just like Jesus after the resurrection. I mean, he was really here. My husband was really here, or my wife was really here and hugged me or, or, or whatever. Now, again, we got to be careful here because you might say theologically, you want Jesus to be unique and not in the same category as everybody else. And I understand that. But as an historian, you want to push the parallels, I think, as far as possible. And here's my minimal conclusion here. If you have an open mind about such things, you probably should have or will have a more open mind about what's in the New Testament than if you have a completely closed mind. If you think 
that the dead are, de are just dead, or if you think the dead never appear or communicate or interact with the living, if that never happens, that probably makes it harder for you to think that there's anything behind the stories in the Gospels. Now, that's only part of the story, folks. That's not only part of the story. So that's one way I, I've been thinking about um, these resurrection encounters in, in the New Testament and why maybe they have some visionary elements to them. But then there's the empty tomb, and that isn't like any of uh, the events I've been talking about. My father is in the ground, and, and that's it. Um, now, the story of the empty tomb isn't in Paul. So some people say, well, Paul didn't know about it. That shows it was a late story. Mark uh, is the first gospel in which we find this story. I, I don't think this is plausible for any number of reasons that we won't go into here. I'll just observe that while Paul doesn't say the tomb was empty, he says Jesus was buried. And I think given his Jewish context and what he says in the rest of the chapter and what we know about the earliest churches, he's just assuming an empty grave. By the way, if you say the Nicene Creed, or if you say the Apostles' Creed, neither one of them uh, explicitly mentions the empty tomb, but the people who put the Apostles' Creed together and the Nicene Creed <laughs> certainly knew that story, all right? So you always got to be careful with arguments uh, from silence. Uh, Paul doesn't mention Joseph of Arimathea, but he also doesn't mention Pontius Pilate. We know that's, that's an historical fact. So um, I'll make this very quick. Historians uh, continue have to have heated debates here. By the way, I should, I didn't say this originally. This is its own field of study, folks. I mean, uh, my new book is 500 pages long, and it's only 500 pages because the type is too small, and the footnotes, which are everywhere, are even smaller, right? If it were a normal-sized book, it'd probably be eight, 900 pages long. But I'm not the only one to do this. I've got, there's a whole section in the library on this subject. There's a whole section of historians talking about the resurrection and, and the facts. Anyway, so somebody uh, like Bart Ehrman, if any of you are familiar with Bart's work, would disagree with me on this. But I think that it's more likely than not that the tomb was, uh, was empty. And the standard argument in the modern world is that the story in the Gospels of the discovery of the tomb is always associated with women, especially Mary Magdalene. And the argument is that if you were just creating a story from scratch, making it up out of nothing, or creating a story that would really support your point of view, you probably wouldn't, given the prejudices and the biases of the first century, uh, have women doing this. You'd probably have the male disciples doing this. By the way, I do think myself that Mary uh, discovered the tomb was empty. And I also think she probably had an encounter or vision uh, with Jesus. But it's really interesting because um, she's not mentioned in Paul's early creed. She isn't there. And I think it's part of the patriarchal world where uh, this just wasn't good apologetics because uh, males tended to look down, or I should say, I should qualify that, many males tended to look, tended to look down upon or regard as inferior the testimony 
uh, of, of women. Anyway, there are lots of questions, counter questions, debates here. I think at the end of the day, uh, you can refine this argument and I think it works. I think what happened is Jesus had some female followers. You know, the picture you have from Hollywood, Jesus walking around with 12 guys, that's just wrong. It's wrong. You read the gospels carefully. There are a bunch of people and a bunch of them are women and they're with him the whole time. So they go up to Jerusalem with him um, because again of gender roles in that society. The disciples are terrified. They flee. The women do not feel threatened in the same way. So they observe his execution. And if they were there for his execution, surely they'd be interested in his burial. And if they saw where he was buried, it would make sense that they would then go back um, later. By the way, uh, you know, we, we're not into this these days because we're all mobile. But um, I, I'm even old enough to remember when Memorial Day was actually Memorial Day. We went out to the graves because the graves were there and we still lived where everybody died. Right. Uh, so it's just human nature to go visit the dead, to visit uh, tombs. Every time I go back to uh, Kansas, which is where um, I was born and raised, I go back to um, the cemetery in Augusta, Kansas, and I say hi to all all my dead, uh, dead folks. So anyway, it's natural to uh, to go back and to mourn uh, at, at the site. And I think that's what happened. Okay, now there are lots, and I, 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 I'm guilty here because I'm a historian, I'm supposed to be critical, and I'm going through all this very, very quickly. But um, this is where I have ended up uh, myself. By the way, there's a section in this book on the Shroud of Turin, and um, I was dumbfounded by how much literature is just on this. This has its own section in my library. Um, I uh, unfortunately decided it would have been fun, would have really, uh, I would have liked tweaking the noses of, uh, of skeptics if I could have said, you know, I think this is real, but I, I, I don't think it's real. Okay, now, what should we conclude? Well, I don't know what you want to conclude. Um, I'll say before sharing with you what I think that there are a million questions we can't answer. This goes back to the dot on the chalkboard. And I do, I, I still put dots on chalkboards and talk about them, about how little we know. But here it's, it's really kind of embarrassing because what do we know about the appearance to Peter? The first appearance, Luke's, Luke refers to it, Paul refers to it. We don't have the story. It, it doesn't exist. Or the appearance to James, we don't have the story. Or you know, the appearance to the 500, wow, wouldn't that be great to have some data? We don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know who these people were. We do not, not, not know how many of them knew Jesus. We, was there a receiving line or was it, you know, up in the clouds? What the heck is this? 500 people? How do they get close enough? Anyway, you can ask lots and lots of questions like this. And the problem is the data is, is thin, right? It's not as thick. Uh, as we, we'd like to have. Um, and then one more thing, one more thing, and this puts a twist in it, and I am very much looking forward to seeing what reviewers make of this, but there's a chapter in this book that I think everybody will refer to, and they won't know what to make of it, because I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> but I discovered that there is a Tibetan tradition 
called Rainbow Body. And this tradition has it that certain advanced adepts, these are Tibetan Buddhist masters, um, they die and then their bodies shriek into nothingness. And then sometimes they come back and appear and talk to their disciples. Now, because we didn't grow up with this, we just think this is all must be myth and legend. But the weird thing is I was able to catalog a bunch of these and some of them took place in the 20th century. One took place in 1998. One has taken place since then. I know enough about, um, I'm close to somebody who's in a Tibetan lineage. And so this person has asked questions of the, you know, the people who should know and all of this. They take this seriously. It's not mythology. These are not fairy tales. They really believe this. And um, the Dalai Lama, who's no intellectual slouch, he actually cares about modern science. Um, he's, read, he's written some skeptical things that I have read. He knows one of the guys involved in the 1998 story. He actually accepts it as true. He doesn't think it's a fairy tale or a myth. Um, by the way, some of these bodies, supposedly, they don't disappear altogether, but uh, they leave hair and fingernails. But the even stranger thing is that you can go on the internet, and if you plug in, go to Google Images and plug in Rainbow Body, you'll see a couple of pictures of people that look like they're half shrunk. They're in their clothes, but the hat's too big, and the clothes are falling off. It's like they... They, they achieved rainbow body, but didn't get there all the way. They sort of quit shrieking halfway there. Now, by the way, in the book, I say, I have no idea what's going on here. No idea. I don't know Tibetan. I've never been to Tibet. I uh, haven't investigated these things firsthand. It's just really interesting. And, you know, I asked, what would Christian theologians do if they decided this were real? Would it be irrelevant? Would it be pertinent? Um, what, what would be going on? And if it's all myth, what would that say about how eyewitnesses can, you know, make up stories and rumors can get started and mislead the Dalai Lama and, and all of that? Anyway, uh, that, that turned out to be a, um, a really interesting uh, field uh, that I that I ended up examining. And again, I don't know what to make of it. I hope somebody else figure, figures this out. Okay, now what do, you, what do you do with all this? Well, I actually think that a lot depends on your presuppositions. So let's say that you believe in God, okay? That makes you open-minded perhaps to this. If you don't believe in God, you're probably gonna have a closed mind, right? Let's say you're open-minded about miracles. Well, that makes this a possibility, I suppose. What if you think miracles can't happen and it's just a bunch of superstitious nonsense, no matter what miracle it is? You're not going to have an open mind about this. You're going to be a skeptic and you're going to want a skeptical scenario. Let's say you believe in an afterlife. Well, that makes this possible. Uh, what if you don't believe in an afterlife? Well, that makes this just not possible, is it? So there are presuppositions at work here, and they're always uh, there for historians. Also, it's just the case that, that some people like me would like Jesus to rise from the dead. I have a theological personal prejudice, 
And there are other people who don't want him to rise from the dead for personal or theological or philosophical reasons. And so that then guides how they think about things. So as, as far as I'm concerned, I, I actually believe in God. And I think the world myself is a really strange place. Miracles, lots of miracles don't bother me. I know there's lots of, a lot of bunk and a lot of stories, but I also think that this is a really strange place. And I live in a world in which uh, bizarre things can happen. I, I enthusiastically believe in a life after this and a world to come. And I want Jesus to be raised. So my own view, here's my theological personal conclusion here at the end. Um, I think Jesus survived bodily death. I think that he appeared to his disciples. I would prefer to call them visions or visionary-like. I also think that the, the, uh, the tomb was empty, but I'm, uh, I, I could live without an empty tomb. So I'm a, I'm a really weird liminal space here because this is so important to so many people, yes or no. And uh, I think it was empty, but um, I'm not sure exactly how to, to interpret it. Um, if it's the, the trophy, God's trophy, that's fine. If something else is going on even weirder, um, that's, that's fine too, uh, with me. Anyway, the upshot of this is I don't think you can prove here, here I disagree with my, uh, evangelical friends who are apologists. Uh, and I know some of them, they think that they can come really close to proving to a disinterested observer, just working with history that, uh, Jesus rose from, from the dead. I think they're expecting too much from, from history, and I think that the resurrection itself doesn't sort of stand as an epistemological foundation, like something you can then prove independently of everything else and then derive everything from it. I think the resurrection is more something um, that's, that's part of a worldview or the Christian universe, and its interpretation and meaning are established by its relationship to other doctrines and other beliefs. Um, and by other things we know about God and about Jesus. And I don't think it's something that you can pull out of that, isolate and hand to a skeptic and say, here, I can compel you to believe, look at my, uh, look at my reasons. So I'm, uh, I'm on the side of the believers here, but I'm, I've not been persuaded by the apologists that they can commend uh, this belief to disinterested, dispassionate, objective uh, reason. Okay, so I've got 757 here. Uh, I think that I'll just uh, stop at this point, and I'll be more than happy to attempt to respond to any questions or comments or criticisms that any of you might have. I wasn't paying attention. I have no idea whether there's a chat box here or what, but you, you can tell me what to do now, Garrett. Yeah, sure. Thank there you. There is a chat box. I'm not oh. Garrett. I'm sorry. Um, there is a chat box, but I don't think anybody's popped any questions. Oh, okay. All right. We were too busy just listening and having exactly. our hair blown back. Oh, my goodness. Um, that was an exceptional job, Dale, of packing <laughs> 350 pages. <laughs> 
Um, I thought it was 500. Yeah, it, yeah, it's really close to 500. And you're oh. right about the really small font. Oh, right. I'm sorry. 403. You're right. 403. Yeah. <laughs> the font's really tiny. And I was hoping for a few more illustrations there. But um, yeah, well, you know what? Uh, publishers these days are, um, uh, are, are struggling. And the bigger they made the book, the more expensive it would be and the fewer copies they would sell. So somebody made a deal, I think it was a deal with the devil, that uh, this would be the best way to, to sell the book. But um, yeah, it's, I wish it were bigger print, but you know, at, at least they, they, they let me pick the cover, which is the first time in history. I've published over 20 books. It's the first time I've ever had any say in the cover and I actually picked it. I liked I liked fronting Mary Magdalene because she's a major figure in this book. I think she's as important as Peter in this book. So, uh, are you getting pushback and criticism from the from your evangelical from our evangelical brothers and sisters? Yeah. I saw a talk that you did with um, is it Mike Lacona? Mike Lacona. Mike's been very uh, we're friendly. He thinks I'm too skeptical. I can't get enough, but no, we're friends, and he's he's. Uh, we disagree um, courteously, okay? I don't know what Gary Habermas is going to say. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, we'll find, but Gary's a nice guy. He likes me, so maybe he won't be mean. <laughs> so, um, so, Kay, uh, so I have, a, I have a question here about, is it, in, is it in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, if Jesus... Uh, was not raised yeah. from the dead. Our faith is in yes. vain. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you what do you make of that? What do you think Paul is referring to there? What's can you so, say so, more about one Corinthians? So, so, so I think that Paul is an apostle. That is his identity. That is who he is, and he is as an apostle, an ambassador on behalf of Jesus Christ, and his message is, the heart of his message is Jesus died and rose. So if that message is false, then Paul is a fraud, and everything he has done is wrong, and his life is actually not just vain or empty, but he's been on the side of falsehood. So for him, again, with, with the gospel that he died and rose, everything hinges upon it, right? I mean, uh, obviously, but let, let me add a personal observ observation here. And this is one of the things I learned when writing the book, and I had really never thought it, about it before. But the resurrection is central to Christian faith. On the other hand, it itself doesn't answer most of the questions you have about Christian faith. Yeah. That is, Orthodox, Catholic, uh, Pentecostals, Reformed, Lutherans, they all believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection doesn't tell you which one of those groups you should belong to. It doesn't tell you how to solve uh, the canon. It doesn't tell you how to interpret the Bible. Actually, every major theological issue that you can think of isn't solved by the resurrection because the people who are engaged in that uh, agree on this one thing, and then they disagree on others. Um, so, that's really interesting. I'm not sure I've yet had time to think through, but it, everyone <clears throat> agrees on that, but it doesn't tell them what else 
to, to think because it leaves open all the other debates. Yeah. Um, Al. Yeah, uh, Dale, thank you for your talk. And I, I would love to have you talk a little bit more about God's role in what you have just said. Uh, you talked about visions. You've said that you believe in God, but what what was God's role in <laughs> raising Jesus from the tomb? As a historian, no, 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 no you can't no, do no, that no, as, an as a historian. No, you have you have to you have to say that this is God's act, right? But so I can say that theologically. But if you're asking me, if, if you're asking me about the mechanics of this, no, not the mechanics. Okay. So, no, I'm perfectly happy to say God raised Jesus from the dead, because I don't think he could have raised himself from the dead, okay? But, again, the, the problem is that this is, this is a big statement. So, um, most Christians believe, right? Most Christians believe that at some point Jesus made a sort of transformation. That is... Um, you and I, let's say there is a heaven, or there's a dimension next door, or, you know, there's this reality right here beside us where the angels are and, and so on. You and I can't enter that. We can't pop in there and come back. So if we are ever to do it, it's not going to be our doing, right? And so I, myself, I think Jesus entered that alternative space, heaven, however you want to think about it, uh, dimension, whatever. I think that is part of the meaning of resurrection, and I think that is God's activity. It's not my activity. Um, and a theologian at that point would probably go back to these rainbow bodies and say, maybe you could make a distinction here at this point, because that, that's some, some other phenomenon. Although I will add, this is a footnote. Isn't it weird that in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus isn't the only one to rise from the dead. It says in chapter 27 that when he died, the rocks were rent. There was an earthquake and tombs were open. And many of the, those in the tombs got up and went into Jerusalem. Uh, so he's not the only one to rise even in the New Testament. And what happened to those people? Did they all turn around and die? Go back to their tombs later on? Uh, did they ascend to heaven with Jesus? What the, I, the world's a weird place. That's a weird story. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, is that getting in part to what you say? Yes, but, exactly. but, but let me add, let me add one other thing too, because it's really hard when we talk about God's agency, because we tend to think of God's agency as being competitive with our agency. So if we do something, then God didn't do it. Right. But I've often wondered about praying over a meal. I give thanks over a meal. And I say, you know, thank you, God, for this bread. So what does that mean? Does it mean there were miracles along the way? Does it mean my story of how farmers plant and then they harvest and then it gets trucked to, you know, a, a bakery and then it goes to the store? My story is exactly the same as the atheist, isn't it? Exactly. But I give thanks for the food and the atheist doesn't so what's the difference there i think we're going to have to say at some point and here and you're getting out of my pay grade but i don't think you want to say that god's actions are always competitive with everything else that's going on you want to say god works through or in or with 
At least I do. Okay. I, I was wondering, um, I, I, I'm having a trouble with words. Um, uh, some of this I've been thinking so much about because I lost my husband two and a half years ago. And when he actually took his last breath, when he died, I had this strong feeling he was gone. His body was left, but uh -huh. he was gone. And what I've done is I find myself focusing on what do we mean by the body? Does it have to be the physical body? Or it could be, is our body the spirit and the essence of who we were? Um, mm. I, and I also, um, when I get to a point where I can't explain it, I say to myself, and I believe this because there's so much in the Bible that I have to say this, with God, all things are possible. And that's because he loves us. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, you're actually raising a very difficult philosophical and theological issue. So there are some theologians who would say that in effect, we are resurrected at death and that we can leave our physical bodies behind. The dominant tradition is that actually something happens to the matter that we leave behind on the last day. But I am personally uh, skeptical of that. I don't think it's coherent or, or works. So I think that whatever, whatever happens to us, the important thing is that we are real and that we are in a relationship with God. And I think being in a relationship with God myself means being a social animal. It means um, continuing uh, relationships that we have now because they're part of our, our identity. But if you want to ask me metaphysically, what is a resurrection body like? Uh, I have no idea. I just zero, right? What just look at the gospel accounts? What is a body that you can touch but that walks through walls? It doesn't really make any sense, does it? So, uh, it's a it's it's at this point that uh, I always go back and I say, I really like thinking, I, I, I'm thrilled with all the discoveries I've made, all the things I've learned. But at the end of the day, I'm a mammal, which means I have a mammalian brain. And if I look at all other animals, I know they can't figure out things, right? So I know that my mind, which is connected now to this brain, uh, must be missing all sorts of, of things. So uh, your experience, uh, you, can, you should, I think, you should accept it as real, even if you don't understand it, because actually we don't understand gravity. We don't understand quarks. He just goes on and on. We don't really understand much of anything. We know how to manipulate and draw equations. But if you're talking about real ontological understanding of things, uh, everything in the end is a sort of mystery, isn't it? Mm. Right? It's a sort of mystery. At least I think it is. I do too. Um, Dale, I remember uh, being approached by 
uh, a parishioner uh, when I was in Pittsburgh, a college student who asked me, uh, so if they found the bones of Jesus and they were able to verify it as truly him, as the first century carpenter, um, he asked me, how would that affect your faith? Um, would you lose any sleep that night? Uh, what, do you, what do you say to him? Well, what did you say? I said, yeah, I think I'd have a little trouble sleeping, at least for one night. So I'd uh, have to rethink some things. I think it would have a huge impact on Christianity. So apart from whether, you know, uh, theologians and professional scholars and so on could rethink things, I think that it would, it would be a problem. Um, I think history does matter to people. And uh, it matters to most Christians that the gospels aren't just stories, that there is a historical Jesus and that we have some sense of him and some of the things we think about him are importantly true, right? And for most Christians, this would be one of them. So my own sort of, I'm not quite sure what to do with the empty tomb thing at the end puts me in a distinct uh, minority position, right? And I'm uh, perfectly willing to admit that. Uh, I'm also willing to admit that I might be wrong. I know I'm wrong about millions of things. I have to be uh, because I disagree. You know, I often think of this. I disagree with Kant, Immanuel Kant on many things. And I disagree with Plato on many things. I disagree with Aristotle. I disagree with Thomas Aquinas. You can go on and on. I disagree with Isaac Newton on many things. These people were all smarter than me. So what are the odds that I'm right in every case and they're always wrong? It's got to be zero, right? So none of us have, have gotten it right. And um, I don't know, maybe you could parse the word faith uh, to um, in such a way that it would be relevant here. I'd actually prefer to think about grace because I think grace involves mm. not just forgiveness of our sins, but mm. uh, forgiveness of our intellectual failings and mistakes, even our honest, uh, including our honest mistakes, right? Um, all we can do is, is, if we're thinking, is think as hard as we can. And given how brilliant people disagree on so many things, uh, you know, modesty is the right uh, virtue. Humility is what's called for, seems to me anyway. Mm. Just scanning across the pages here. Well, I would, I, I, I would have no problem if they found Jesus's bones. Like, like, it's like part of your, you know, what you were saying was about, about the visionary aspect of it. It's like that visionary aspect doesn't make any less real if they find the bones sometime, or if they were in the tomb, if it was empty, if they had removed the bones, it doesn't make the visionary experience any less real to me. So, I agree with you on that, but I think I would have to admit, or you'd have to admit, that lots of Christians would disagree with you, right? Yeah, that's, that's, right. The, that's the only point. So yeah, the question it's is problematic. Historically, yeah. it'd be problematic. I'd just lose yeah. some sleep for one night. One night, okay. Uh, I don't know if I'd lose sleep, uh, but um, that's because I usually take sleeping aids anyway. So. I'm, I'm old enough now. I just don't sleep without taking some melatonin. <laughs>
Yeah, that's really interesting, Rawson. Um, so, I think Don has a question. Uh, Don Stewart, uh, you're muted. Elizabeth, can you unmute? You guys are. I'm sorry. I tried there. to help and I remuted them. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. Right. Oh, there they are. Okay. Don, you're on. Okay. Um, the discussions I've had in the past about um, resurrection have always hinged on sort of a background of, of believability. And then some um, 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 structure of logic that ultimately winds up saying that um, uh, uh, Jesus is um, or is or is not um, uh, 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 Jesus uh, was or was not. Uh, um, resurrected, but I wanted to take a little bit long, different view of this, which is, given that Jesus was um, survived all of the horrible things that went on in Jerusalem, and which in of itself is um, a major accomplishment, so to speak, that he was able to he was able to um, survive all of that and and all the stuff, all the incidences that are in the Gospels about what happened to him um, leaving when he from the time when he left Nazareth. Um, but I I've always been bothered by the unbalanced nature of this discussion. It's always assumed that physics is right and physics uh, gets the message across uh, most convincingly because every everybody knows physics is is um, something that um, you don't argue with and um, so I'm I'm left with a, a suspicion that we haven't explored the the world of what happened to Jesus from the, the point of view of, of um, people live on the on the ground and in their spiritual um, um, uh, houses, so to speak. Um, in any case, I I think we give too much credit to physics and not enough credit to um, uh, not enough credit to the, the people that um, are re were responsible for his death and, and apparent resu resurrection and um, I, I think that that's not I, I suppose you could label that as, as 
pretty fringy. But um, I, I think it, the balance, which physicists look for all the time in their work, you know, this, 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 does this relate to that? Um, I, I, uh, I have some, I have plenty of questions. Oh, well, okay, so yeah, there's, all right, there's a lot there. First of all, I have talked to some physicists and tried to figure out what quantum physics is, and I can't understand what's going on, and my conclusion has been they really don't know what's going on anymore either. That is, they've gotten down to such a, a level that while they can talk about you know, they can draw a diagram of a bubble chamber. They can't really conceptualize it. And once they start talking about things like waves of probability, I think they're really spooky. And I don't know what to make of them. But I would also say, if I understood the question correctly, I always want to distinguish between science and scientism. Scientism being the, the, the worldview that says the only thing real is what science scientists can measure and prove and establish in the lab and so on. I think that's a really narrow, uh, inadequate uh, point of view. And um, I, 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 just, I just don't buy it at all. So um, I personally think that there are um, lots of things in the world that don't fall within the realm of physics as we understand it today. Uh, among other things, physics still only deals with a small portion of the universe. I mean, you know, if these, if these people talk about dark, dark matter and dark energy, and if they're right, they're, they're admitting that 90, at least 90% of what goes on, they have no idea what it is, right? So anyway, uh, I've actually taken a consolation from uh, discussions with scientific friends because I think they've reached the boundary of, of understanding. And, and it would make no sense to think that textbook science uh, captures the entirety of the world. By the way, I've seen some things that don't belong uh, in, in the textbooks and I have to believe my own eyes. It would be just ridiculous to uh, say, I, I can't believe things that I've, I've seen because some scientist says it couldn't happen. Um, so Dale, one, one last question that I just have in the chat box here. Um, so can you, can you clarify what you meant by Jesus survived bodily death? Um, was he really dead when he was taken off of the cross? Can uh, we so, so the old Christian tradition is that when Jesus dies, he is actually in Hades. That's where you get uh, descended into hell from, which is a very popular doctrine from the second century on. Uh, Protestants reinterpreted that to mean, well, he just experienced the, the extremity uh, of death. But the tradition in the church is that he visited the place of the dead and he wrecked the place and he let a bunch of people go or everybody go, depending on your interpretation. So that's, for, my, for me, that's a myth or a legend that I like 
and that can be interpreted. But if you're asking me what the heck is going on with Jesus himself, I have no idea, nor do I understand how anybody could, could answer the question. So uh, if, if, there's a, if there's a point at which Jesus's body changes and you're asking where is his consciousness between death and that, that whatever it is, by the way, you don't know what that is. Does he just poof out of existence? Does he walk through the cave wall? What is, what's, what is this? Does he disappear in a blaze of lights? Uh, do his um, you know electrons just all of a sudden go faster than the speed of light? I, I come on, nobody knows anything, right? So um, the answer, the honest answer is, I have no idea how to answer your question. Nor does anybody else who has ever lived. Just that speck of chalk on a chalkboard, I guess. Um, so, thank you, Dale. Um, as I as I said, so his new book here, um, "The Resurrection of Jesus," you can find it on Amazon. It's published by TNT Clark. Um, I, you know, for for some of his more personal reflections on these things, night comes is a great place to go. Um, he's got a chapter on, well, he's got chapters on all the really grim stuff, hell, judgment, death, but also heaven. And there's a chapter on the resurrection and the resurrection body uh, that I think is exceptionally well done. I was, I was telling Jack, um, uh, before our conversation, Professor Allison is the master of the final paragraph. Um, he, the, his closing sections of chapters and his closing chapters in books are always this blend of comfort and wonder. Um, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, uh, but read the last couple of words from your paragraph on resurrection and bodies and might be a good place for us to end. So um, some people feel they've been thrown into this world. Although I don't dispute their experience, mine is different. I feel that I was gently laid down here. Maybe that's why so much of life has seemed to be a gift, including my body, which I didn't design or build. As soon as I became aware, it was just there going about its manifold business. Furthermore, I don't really understand much about it. I don't know how to break down food or how to distribute nutrients. I don't know how to heal cuts or how to battle infections. I don't know how to man manufacture saliva or how to contract muscles. All these things and a million more of which I'm the beneficiary just happen. I do none of them. Science to be sure helps me to understand some of what goes on but it was all going on long before my teachers and my books taught me anything. We're all immersed in a great wisdom that we didn't invent and don't control a great wisdom that's been with us since birth. Hope in resurrection is the conviction that this wisdom won't abandon us as death approaches, but will accompany us to whatever awaits us. Professor Allison, thank you for your deep wisdom. 
um, and reminding of reminding us of the mystery that surrounds us. Uh, it's been a true gift. We're grateful for your scholarship and uh, know that it's not just for the uh, Academy of Religion, but it affects us people on the ground. So thank you, bless you. Thank you everyone for this evening and have a good night. Thanks, Garrett. And also thank you all for your attention. I, I do appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Thank you.